good morning, church. It is great to see you this morning, and good morning to all of our campuses who are joining us uh, right now, and all of those who are watching online, maybe on spring break. It's really hard to tell when spring break is nowadays, you know? It was last week, it's this week, maybe it's next week too. Should we just live our whole life on spring break? I think so. Anyway, I want to tell you a story about uh, me and my wife first meeting, and uh, if you don't know this story, it, it's, it's one of my favorite to tell. And when I first saw Kelly, uh, I thought that she was the most beautiful girl in the world. And I was like that typical 20-year-old Christian guy who's like, we're predestined to be married. It is, <laughs> God told me, you know. <laughs> and so I started uh, pursuing her. And she uh, was very kind, but she rejected me a lot. 75 times. And you're thinking, surely, Pastor, you're, you're exaggerating. I'm not. At some point, it becomes so pathetic that you start counting the rejections. And eventually, though, over the course of three years, uh, she said yes, and we started dating. And it was amazing because we started having deeper conversation, and I started learning more about her. And even though I thought she was very beautiful on the outside, the more that I learned about her, the more that I knew her passions and knew who she truly was, the more beautiful that I actually found her. And I'm not saying that to be sappy, that's true. And, and I can say today, eight years uh, married, that I find my wife more beautiful now than I ever have uh, before. And that's true about a lot of things in life, isn't it? especially things of great importance, that the more that you learn about them, the more that you know about them, the more beautiful that they become. And so my assignment for today is for us to learn more about some things that are going to be said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to find beauty in two areas, in marriage and in singleness, in marriage and in singleness. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. If you remember last week, we saw that some of the people in the Corinthian church, they had a, a low view of their bodies. Remember, this dualism was coming into the church, and they believed that the immaterial, that their soul and spirit were of, uh, of the only value, and that the material, their body, was of no value, that it, it didn't matter what they did with it. And that led them into sexual immorality, into hedonism, really. They, they would say, all things are lawful for me. I can do whatever I want with my body because it doesn't matter. This week, we're going to see the same low view of the body, but the opposite direction. Instead of hedonism, we're going to see asceticism, which is that I will deprive my body of everything. My body doesn't matter, and so I'm not going to give my body anything. This is asceticism. So, so while Paul spoke negatively last week about sexual immorality, this week he's going to speak positively about sexual purity and about proper Christian sexual ethics, mostly as it relates to marriage and singleness. And then it also ends uh, with him talking about divorce, just to give you a little bit of a roadmap for us today, because we are going to cover a lot. Amen? You ready? I hope you had your coffee this morning. I know I did. Two cups, maybe three. Here's the thing. The reason that this matters, the reason that this matters, this, how we view the body, because this low view of the body creates a low view of marriage. A, a low view of marriage or of singleness keeps us from finding the beauty in it. And so today, hopefully, we're going to raise that view, and we're going to find beauty in a new kind of marriage, in a new kind of singleness, and in a new kind of peace. Because, again, we are very much like the Corinthian church. I know that we like to think to ourselves that we're not like them at all, but we are like them. We have too low of a view of marriage. We have too low of a view of singleness. We have too low of a view of marriage. 
piece. Our, our view is, is, is simply too low. And so we need to bring that view up to where God's view is on these matters. Because in a lot of ways, our low view on these things are connected to our view of God. And they can bring a low view of God. If we view marriage as disposable, that brings a low view of God and his design. It brings a low view of God and his commands. If I view singleness as a curse, it brings a low view of God and his gifts. If I, if I view peace as a last option or not an option, that, that brings a low view of God and his calling on my life. So let's raise that view this morning. And here's the first thing that we're going to see. Find beauty in a new kind of marriage. We're gonna be in verse one through five. It starts with Paul saying, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, Paul here is signaling that he is now going to start addressing the issues in the letter that the Corinthians sent to him. Remember, they were kind of pen pals together. And so he, he is addressing now the issues about which they wrote. And they said in that letter, quotes, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul answers, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So Paul partially agrees with this statement, just like he did last week when, when they said all things are lawful. Paul partially agrees, but he's got some really important qualifiers to that statement of it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul here is, is what he's going to be doing is he's going to be giving nuance to something that is being seen as, as predominantly black and white. Paul is a, is a big fan of, of celibacy, but Paul is not ascetic. He, he's not a monk. And since this sexual immorality is everywhere in the Corinthian church, kind of sounds familiar to us, doesn't it? What he's doing is he's warning them of the danger of temptation towards sexual immorality, and he's going to be providing a solution to it, which is biblical marriage, a helpful solution to temptation towards sexual immorality. It's biblical marriage. It keeps us and helps us keep away from that. In fact, the, the great reformer, Martin Luther, um, is uh, quoted as saying this um, about his marriage to Katie Von Bora. He says, his marriage would please his father, it would rile the Pope, classic, it would cause the angels to laugh and the devils to weep. He also quoted uh, about his marriage before, as, as he was leading up to his marriage, that he was, get, he was getting married to spite the devil. <laughs> Man, words every woman wants to hear, right? Martin Luther, what a, what a romantic, <laughs> to spite the devil. Oh, they actually had a lovely marriage, eventually. But he says... It, that's what he's getting at is it spites the devil is because it helps in this area of, of sexual immorality. Marriage does, biblical marriage. And notice, too, how this isn't just a, a helpful solution to that problem. He's also sharing truths about biblical marriage. He's sharing two, really, right here, that each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Biblical marriage is monogamous. Each should have their own, meaning one. It is between one man and one woman is monogamous. It is also heterosexual, between a man and a wife. This is truths about biblical marriage that he's sharing. And he's also providing a helpful solution. And now he's going to be bringing this nuanced correction specifically to this area of, of marriage. Look at verse three with me. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. 
Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now remember, Paul, big fan of celibacy, but seemingly what was happening is the Corinthians were, were taking this celibacy view and they were bringing it into marriage and they were being celibate in marriage. Or they were going through long periods of abstinence in their marriages. They were depriving one another. Or they were only engaging in, in sex for procreation, which is uh, designed for sex by God in biblical marriage, but he also designed it to be enjoyed. They rejected that completely, that sex was at all for pleasure. And they were doing all of this for the sake of holiness, for the sake of holiness, for purity's sake. And Paul is warning them here that, that, that their best intentions of, of trying to avoid sexual sin by not engaging in, it in, mar- in sex in marriage, it, it could actually result in them falling into it. I think of it a lot like the person who um, really has good intentions and wants to hold on to a relationship and wants to make sure that they don't lose that relationship. And so what do they do? They start grasping it a little bit tighter. They become maybe a little bit more overbearing, you know, and they start squeezing <laughs> and they become obsessive and they become like a stage five Klingon, you know what I'm saying? And, and eventually what they do, despite their best intentions, is they end up choking the relationship out and they lose it, even though their intention was to keep it. And in the same way, their intention is sexual purity. But that might lead them, especially in this area of marriage, towards sexual Immorality. And so to correct this, first Paul talks about conjugal rights. These are the marital duties of husband and wife. The language that Paul is actually using here is the, is the language uh, referring to something like a debt or, uh, or an obligation or, or a duty, giving the other person what they are owed. Now, I'll admit, at face value, that does not sound very romantic, does it? Right? But look at how it's structured. Look at how it's structured. The husband gives to the wife what she is owed. The wife gives to the husband what he is owed. I'm not demanding what I'm owed. I'm not a debt collector seeking to collect what I'm owed. I'm giving what the other person is owed. It's it's framed as service to one another. It's serving one another. It's not selfishness. It is service. I'm serving the other person, and it's mutual. It's mutual. It's together. We are giving and serving one another in this area. He continues in the same way, verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, a lot of people like to stop right there. <laughs> they do. They're like, see, I, see what it says? I have authority. Too many people do that, and they use this verse as a, as a domineering club towards their spouse. Your body is under my authority. See what it says in scripture? You must give me what I want. It's really important to read the next part of the verse, okay? Here it is. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, this is really countercultural, what Paul is saying, because in the ancient day, it was patriarchy, and the wife did not have authority over the husband in any way, shape, or form. And so this is extremely counter to the culture. And Paul is bringing a mutual authority in this area of sex in marriage. And so this plays out a couple of different ways, right? I, I understand that my body is under the authority of my spouse. 
And if they want the body, it's theirs, right? I also understand that my body is under the authority of my spouse. Did that sound exactly the same? Here's the difference. If I want their body and they don't want my body, they can say no to my body because they have authority over my body. It's mutual authority. I don't get to do whatever I want irrespective of the other person. Each one has to consider what's best for the other instead of going by what I want. It is mutual. It is decided together selflessly. This is the new kind of marriage, a selfless marriage. We wouldn't take that attitude into anywhere else in our marriage, would we? If we were to bring that to finance, I get to do whatever I want. It's my money and I need it now. (laughs) What a commercial. Right? We wouldn't do that. I'm just going to go and buy whatever I want. I don't need to talk to you. We don't need to agree about this. I'm just going to go off and I'm going to purchase. I'm going to go on a spending spree, shopping spree. I'm going to get whatever I want. Is that going to create a healthy marriage, yes or no? No, it's not. And in the same way, it's the same as in this area of of sexual intimacy. It is a mutual serving of one another's mutual agreement. Look at verse 5. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Paul understands that there are going to be times in marriage where there's going to be an absence of relations. And, and many people maybe hear it in their marriage have experienced this. And what, it, what he's giving us here is six really important truths that we need to grab a hold of uh, in this area. So first, I, I didn't know how to say it a different way. Um, have sex. Some of you are like, that's the best advice you've ever given, Pastor Tommy. All right? It's not my advice. It's Paul's, okay? It's, it says, don't deprive one another. Don't, this is a, in a marriage relationship, by the way. Okay, I just want to clarify that. Don't deprive one another. This should be an ongoing, regular thing in your marriage, having a healthy sexual intimacy. We aren't depriving one another. We are engaging in this together and giving and serving each other in this area. Then Paul says, except, except, perhaps, so in times when this isn't happening, here's a a really great thing to to follow. Here's how it needs to be done. Uh, One, well, two, uh, by agreement. By agreement. It's it's not one person deciding. It's, it's It's a mutual agreement. Mutual authority brings mutual uh, agreement. Both have decided this together. There is agreement in this area. It's for a limited time. Paul doesn't state an amount of time. He just says limited time, which means not long, okay? So so we're talking days and and weeks, not months or years. Limited time. And, And it's also to be with a purpose, to be devoted to prayer, to be devoted to prayer. This temporary abstinence is for spiritual purposes, It's so that our full attention would be devoted to seeking the Lord in this time, not towards each other's needs. Maybe you're trying to get some really big answers to some really big questions in your life or your family or your marriage. That's this. Number five uh, is come together. After that limited time is done, come together again. We don't stay in abstinence. You, You come together again and you do it for protection. For protection, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Satan is the great tempter. He is the great 
tempter. And if this period of time goes on for too long, he is going to bring his temptation to one or the other person, and they might be tempted to gratify themselves in other ways. So we protect each other when we do this, when we follow this passage, when we follow this instruction. So, so, so when we look at this, how do, how do we apply this to our marriages? Well, we apply it by, by serving one another, selflessly serving one another, seeking to meet the needs of, of, of the other person. We're seeking oneness together, emotional oneness, spiritual oneness, and yes, physical oneness with mutual authority and mutual agreement and mutual devotion to God. We are protecting each other from temptation. Marriage is not selfish. It is selfless, and that is what makes it beautiful. Marriage isn't about my needs and my desires. It's about serving the other person's needs and desires, and we should be doing that together even and especially in this area of sexual intimacy. We're finding beauty in a new kind of marriage, a selfless marriage. Ready to shift gears? Okay, we're shifting. Here we go. Here's the second thing. Find beauty in a new kind of singleness. Uh, We're not going to spend a lot of time here this week because in two weeks we are going to talk about this much more in depth. But there's two things that I I want us to see in this passage. Let's let's look at it. It's verse 6 through 8. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. There's no command from Jesus in this area, so so Paul is bringing his apostolic authority to it. I wish that all were as uh, I wish that all were as I myself am, uh, which is celibate and single. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Here's the first thing that we see is it's a gift. It's a gift. Just like marriage is a gift, singleness is a gift. And I think a lot of people can view their singleness as a curse instead of a gift. They can feel those feelings of of, of loneliness, those missed feelings of, of companionship. And it can start to feel a lot like a curse and not much like a gift. And the type of singleness that Paul is specifically talking about here is the the gift of of celibacy, which is what he had, which is not even having a desire to be married. Uh, This is what some people would call permanent singleness. But some people have temporary singleness, right? They're they're single now, but they um, desire to be married eventually. The reality is, is that both of those are gifts. They're both gifts. One of those gifts will be for a lifetime, and one of those gifts will be for a season. And Paul commends this. He says it's a good thing. It's good. He doesn't say why it's good right here, but I'm going to tell you why it's good, okay? I'm going to tell you why it's good. He says it later on in the verse. He says it's good because it secures our full devotion to the Lord. It secures your full devotion to the Lord, meaning you're not distracted by the things of this world. Uh, Every spouse and every parent will tell you that spouses and kids, they take a lot of time, right? It takes work in your marriage, okay? And it takes work to parent your kids. And a lot of your time is taken up caring for them, 
As a single person, you're not distracted by those things. You can be a fully devoted force for the kingdom of God, like Paul. And so we need to look at this gift of singleness correctly, because when we do, it's beautiful. Think about it. A life fully devoted to God, undistracted. That is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful gift. The other thing that we see is that if you are burning with passion, meaning your inner emotions, your inner passions are burning or they are strong for sexual expression, then you should be married. Paul is, is talking to uh, people that he knows are not married and yet still engaging in sexual immorality. And he's saying that those passions and those emotions are meant for marriage. God designed those for the context of marriage. And so rather than living a life of sexual immorality, of sin, it is much better to be married, where you can exercise those passions in the place where God created them to be exercised. Singleness is beautiful. It is a, it is a gift. And when I view my singleness, whether temporary or permanent, as a gift, it makes it all the more beautiful. And like I said, we're going to go into much more in-depth in that in the weeks to come. This was just a bit of a teaser. Finally, this. Find beauty in a new kind of peace. Find beauty in a new kind of peace. So we've talked about marriage, and we talked very briefly about singleness. Now we're going to kind of switch directions, and Paul's going to be talking about divorce. Paul's covering a lot of topics this week. And we're going to see two types of married couples right now. Uh, the first is Christians, two Christians in, in a married relationship. Look at verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate or divorce from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Uh, Paul says, uh, not I, but the Lord. What he's doing is he's drawing uh, from the teachings uh, of Jesus in the Gospels about marriage and divorce. That a wife should not divorce her husband and a husband should not divorce his wife. This is a, a command from Christ. God made marriage to, to be between one man and one wife for, for a lifetime. And what God brought together, let no man separate. Paul is confirming the teachings of Jesus. Now, this is pretty straightforward for Christian couples, right? Um, don't divorce your spouse. And then we get to the parentheses. Thanks for adding those. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So now we have to talk about the exemption clause that Jesus gives in Matthew 5 when he's teaching on marriage and divorce. And in that, he shares that the only grounds for divorce in Christian marriage is sexual immorality or sexual unfaithfulness, to be more precise. So if a, if a spouse is sexually unfaithful, divorce is biblically allowed or permissible. Uh, it should never be the first option. It should never be a decision made in isolation, but it is biblically permissible. And Paul isn't addressing that exemption here. That's not what the parentheses are about. What he's doing is he is, he is stressing Jesus' main point that Jesus is teaching on, and, 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 and that is that divorce and remarriage outside of the exemption is sinful. It's, it's sinful. So the parentheses here is actually addressing a situation where a divorce happens unjustifiably. And if that's the case, uh, remarriage is 
indeed sinful. And what should take place instead is reconciliation, peace. Should be peace. And this is a very important topic in our day, the subject of divorce. If you've looked at the divorce rates recently, um, outside of uh, Christianity, the divorce rates in the world are 50%, which is just wild to think about, that half of marriages end in divorce. And in the Christian church circle, um, that that number is a little bit less. It's it's 30%. It's 30%. 30% of of people, um, Christians, their their marriage ends in, in divorce, which some people celebrate. They say, wow, we are so much less than that 50%. I don't see a reason to celebrate that number. 30% is still very large. So instead of one half, it's about one third. That, I don't see a cost to celebrate that. What it, what it shows to me and what it should show to us is that the, the culture of the world is still influencing the culture of the church. That's, that's what it should signify to us. The, the world says that, that peace is divorce. That to, to, to have a peaceful life, if you're fighting in your marriage, if you guys just can't see eye to eye on some things, if you're drifting apart, if you're not feeling compatible with one another, the, the peaceful thing is to just separate. Just get away from each other. That's gonna create peace. And it's really easy to do. All you have to do is log on to computer and boom, it's done. That's what the world says is peace. Running away from it, avoiding it altogether. Peace is divorce. The word of God says peace is, is reconciliation. It's working through those difficult conversations. It's working through that conflict. It's coming together and fighting for peace in the marriage. It is actual peacemaking. It's not some form of peace faking, running from it altogether. It's fighting for peace. Reconciliation. That is the heart of God. So divorce is not an option for the Christian except for the exemption. And even in that, Exemption. We should continue to fight for peace and reconciliation. We absolutely should. Because God has such a high view of the marriage that he created that we should fight for reconciliation and peace in our marriage. And when we do, and we've seen this, when, when that peace is fought for and that reconciliation happens on the other side, it is beautiful. It is beautiful. The next type of married couple that Paul is addressing is the Christian and, and non-Christian. You see, um, the, the, the Corinthians would get married, and then, and then while they were married, they were actually getting saved, which is amazing. But maybe one of the, one of the, spot, like this one, the husband or the wife would, either one of them would get married, or sorry, would get saved. They would both be married, obviously. And so uh, they were kind of in this situation of, of what do I do, right? So this isn't promoting like... Um, uh, evangelating or flirt to convert, right? It's not like that, okay? This, he's not promoting that. These are people who were married, who were then being saved while they were married. You know, there was no missionary dating going on here, okay? This is what he says, verse 12. To the rest, I say, which is to the rest of the married couples, this is mixed marriage. Notice he says, I, not the Lord. Now, this doesn't make what's gonna 
come after this less authoritative. He's just making sure that people know that Jesus didn't speak specifically about Christian and non-Christian marriage. And so what Paul is doing is he's bringing his apostolic authority to this issue. So it is still authoritative for us. He says that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So once the Corinthians were being saved in this mixed marriage, uh, they had the idea to divorce their spouses, their unsaved spouses, because they believed that a sexual union with, with an unbeliever would defile them. And Paul is saying, uh, first off, that's not true. In fact, it's the opposite. They don't defile you. You make them holy. Not saved, but holy. It makes the union sacred and, and beautiful. That the holiness of the believer brings holiness to the relationship. And so if they consent to live with you or to, to be married to you, then the believer should not seek divorce because there is a potential that that unbelieving spouse through that marriage will come to salvation. Kelly and I, um, we actually, both of our parents fall into this category of mixed marriages. It's incredibly common in the church. Uh, both of our moms are saved and both of our dads are not saved. And we have, uh, we've been praying for our dads for a really, really, really long time. And um, it, it, it's come with its fair amount of struggles. Uh, we've seen our moms struggle with a lot uh, there's been a lot of difficulty. There's different values and different ways of, of looking at things, different worldviews, different desires. But they've been married for 35 plus years, both of them. And, and we have seen over time this exact thing be true, that, that our dads are made holy. We, we've seen them change over time because of the faithfulness of our moms to Christ We've seen that holiness transferred to the relationship, and they have grown in some pretty amazing ways. Uh, they, they aren't there yet, but we're praying for them every single day, and we're bringing God into our conversations, and all of the kids are following the Lord, so we aren't unclean. We aren't tainted. And, and I say this, one, because mixed marriages are common, uh, but two, th there can be a lot of discouragement in them. And I'm not saying that our story is, is going to be everyone's story, but what I do want to say is it, it, what I want to give is a testimony to seeing the truth of this lived out in our life and in the lives of our parents. And while it's not exactly where uh, we, we want it to be, it is not where it was. And we have hope in the future that our dads would be saved. Just wanted to give a, that encouragement for whoever needed to hear it. Uh, Paul goes on in, in verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether, you're, uh, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is another exemption clause. Uh, for divorce, specifically for Christian, non-Christian marriages. It's called the abandonment clause. Um, you are to remain in marriage um, with a non-believer, but if they abandon you, if they separate from you, if they seek divorce from you, 
then you are not bound or enslaved to the marriage, Paul says, because God has called you to peace, meaning that you don't need to stress and destroy yourself trying to fight for that marriage if they abandon you. Because there is no guarantee that they're going to be saved. Paul says, for how do you know? We don't. And so there's an exemption here for that specific case. So what does that mean? What what does separation mean? What does abandonment really mean? Well, here's a couple of scenarios that are pretty straightforward. Um, If the unbelieving spouse files for divorce, that's certainly them abandoning the relationship, separating from the relationship. And in that case, you are not bound. It says to, to, to let it be so. God has called you to peace. Um, if the unbelieving spouse up and leaves, like physically, leaves, goes to live somewhere else, abandons you completely, they have abandoned, separated from the relationship, and you are not enslaved, you are not bound. Um, if, if, if the unbelieving spouse is abusive, they have abandoned the relationship. They have separated from the relationship. And in that case, you are not bound. Those are just some scenarios of what abandonment could look like. And, but I think that this has to be said because uh, we've been talking in terms of Christian and non-Christian, right? Christian and non-Christian. But the stark reality is that there are many people who profess Christianity who aren't really Christians. And so that profession is actually tested in church discipline outlined in Matthew 18. If someone is claiming to be a Christian, professing to be a Christian, and is doing these things, filing unjustly for divorce, uh, abandoning their spouse and their families altogether, or abusing their spouse, and they aren't listening or repentant to you or to other witnesses, they come under the authority of the church. And if they remain unrepentant, even to the church, they're to be viewed as tax collectors and Gentiles, essentially unbelievers. This is God's design for the church in these matters. And they fall, if that is true of them, then they are to be viewed as unbelievers and they fall into this category of Christian non. And so, I just want to say, if if you're dealing with this right now, spouse is doing, an unbelieving spouse or a professing spouse is doing any of these things and professing to be a Christian, you start with Matthew 18. If they don't listen to you, if they don't listen to the witnesses that you bring, you bring it to the authority of the church. And if they remain unrepentant, they're to be viewed as unbelievers because that is not the conduct of a Christian. It is not. And just one more point of clarity. If, if there is abuse going on, there is abuse, uh, your first thing is to go to the authorities. And we can start Matthew 18 uh, once you're safe. I just commend you to do that. The goal here is peace. It's peace. Whether that is uh, reconciliation and making peace with your Christian spouse, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing, or, or it's letting an unbelieving spouse separate in peace. God has called us to this. He has called us to peace. Commitment to marriage is, is of massive concern to Paul, and it should be to us as well. And I know that we've spent a, a little bit of time 
on these exemptions concerning divorce because they are very complex, and I know that it came right at the end of our time, but it should not be the focal point of our time as we leave together today. The focal point should be committing to marriage. It's finding beauty in our selfless marriage. It's finding beauty in the gift of singleness that God has given you. It's finding beauty in peace which God has called us to. And if God has called you to marriage, strong and healthy marriages have a strong and healthy sexual intimacy. And that's a beautiful thing. And if God has called you to singleness, whether temporary or permanently, it is a good and precious gift from him. And you have the opportunity to secure your life to be fully devoted to God, undistracted. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And God has called you to peace. So let's make peace in our marriages. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our time spent together going through what your word says. And Lord, I'm just thoughtful of so many different types of of people right now. Lord, those who are struggling in their marriage, struggling to find peace, struggling to find reconciliation. God, we know that your heart is restoration. We know that you have called us to peace. And so, Lord, by the power of your spirit, would you help make peace in our marriages? Would you help reconciliation to take place? Would you guide us and lead us as we do that? We rely on your strength, Lord. We need your spirit to do it. God, I I pray for the single person who is struggling with their singleness. They're feeling cursed. They're, they're, They're feeling lonely. God, would you draw near to them right now? Would you fill that void that they're feeling? Would you bring them close to yourself? Would you comfort their hearts? Would you remind them again that the the singleness that you have given given them is a gift? God, I pray for those who are struggling with intimacy. God, would you strengthen and grow our marriages in our serving of one another? in our oneness, spiritually, emotionally, and yes, physically? Would you help us to protect one another? Lord, I pray for those who are discouraged right now, who have an unbelieving spouse, And I have seen I've seen the tears 
Would you encourage their hearts today? Would they not give up hope? Would I not give up hope? We don't know what the future will bring, but we know that you control the future. And so God, I just pray that you would strengthen our hearts in the areas that our flesh will fail and our heart will fail. You are the strength of our heart and our portion forever. And so Lord, we give this time to you. We love you. Would you help us to continue to build our lives on the firm foundation of your word? Let it instruct our hearts and our minds as we go off into life, into various different situations. Lord, we love you and we seek to glorify you. We praise you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.